Welcome back to the Hemingway List podcast of excellence. Talking about book two, chapter 21. Tonight's episode is brought to you by the beverage coffee. 10.30pm coffee. My sleep cycle has been drifting again. I've been going to sleep later and later. And then today, I um, had an evening nap. I'd just woken up from a couple of hours of sleep. And it's, you know, 10.30 at night. So, I figured, okay, now I'm going to be awake all night. Might as well have a cuppa. It's not good, is it? But hey, with all this locking down and all the rest, it makes no difference. I've got nowhere to be anyway. Uh, also, speaking of having nowhere to be, thank you for supporting the podcast at patreon.com slash the Hemingway list if you've done so. You can um, chip in a dollar or five or a million if you're really feeling generous. Um, over at patreon.com slash the Hemingway list. It helps support this project and helps keep me sane. <laughs> um, speaking of me not being sane, I am struggling with these translations. The last few chapters have been long chapters. So, um, you know, I got behind a little bit and then I was like, right, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to really knuckle down and I'm going to do two chapters a day until I'm back up ahead and I'm going to really stay ahead. But the last three chapters of the book have each been the length of about three or four chapters. So even though I'm doing two chapters worth, I'm not even getting halfway through the day's chapter, if that makes sense. And um, it's just really like hard to keep moving with it. I'm moving as much as I can, but it's very demotivating is what I'm trying to say. Got a very nice message from Brian E. Denton, OG War and Peace legend. He's the guy with the medium articles about every single uh, chapter. And uh, he sent me a message of encouragement today. And a little thing like that meant so much. It actually really lifted my spirits. Um, so thanks. Thanks for that, Brian. What I'll do shortly is get book two packaged up and ready to be purchased. So I'm serializing War and Peace in the exact same way that Tolstoy did when he originally released it. He released it in uh, 17 parts. There's 15 books and two epilogues uh, in War and Peace. And he released them as he finished them um, as a way to fund, I guess, the project. You know, So he could start selling bits of it while he completed the whole thing. And in much the same way, when the whole thing's finished, you'll be able to buy the whole thing in one volume, one big book, as we're kind of familiar with War and Peace. But in the meantime, um, buying it in the serialized versions, you'll be able to have a sort of a box set of these 17 smaller books in your shelf. And that's kind of bragging rights for you to be able to say, oh, yeah, I helped fund this project while it was happening. I was a supporter of this project. And whatever that's worth to you, you know, your bragging rights. It's worth a lot to me. It really helps me get through it. So um, look up the Andrew Lewis War and Peace version on Amazon if you haven't already and, and grab yourself an ebook or a paperback book. Uh, okay, let's talk about what we're here to talk about, shall we? Book 2, Chapter 21, or Book 2 in general. I kind of should have said that, hey, a mega thread about just Book Book 2, excuse me. How severe do you think Rostov's injuries really are? 
What do you think his chances of are getting are of getting home? How do you think the soldiers are feeling after this battle? Deflated, relieved, disappointed? Well, it in some ways it was a victory. Um, they allowed Kutuzov's, you know, the main bulk of Kutuzov's detachment to get back to the backup. You know, there were more troops, Russian troops, heading in. And um, they needed to rendezvous with them before the French could. And so this smaller detachment, Bagration's detachment, had to stay back and defend against that, buy them time. And they were successful in doing that. And they lost a hell of a lot of people, but they didn't lose everyone. Um, And they kind of held their ground pretty well through a few kind of flukes as we've just read over the last few chapters some things really went their way like the um the little cannonade of four cannons was left unharmed relatively unharmed because the french just assumed that it was being defended by you know hundreds or thousands of troops um and it wasn't and so it should have just it should not have been nearly as successful as it was in defending against the french they should have just taken it out instantly but they just kind of thought, well, no one would be crazy enough to be up there in an undefended little cannonade. So that must be where everyone is, hiding up there over the hill. So that's really cool the way that happened. So I think they kind of felt like they were on a bit of a suicide mission. You know, they're just here to buy time for the rest of the army to escape. And that was kind of their, their thing. You know, they didn't really expect many of them to come back at all. And yet they kind of got away. A lot of them got away. They defended, they bought the time necessary, and they got out with the majority, I think, of their troops. All right, Ripster66 says, It seems like Rostov may have dislocated his shoulder. It's more than a sprain, very painful, but not as severe as many other injuries around him. It's certainly the most painful thing he's experienced in his life, and he's still in a sort of shock that this could happen to him and that his charmed life offers him no protection from the harsh realities of war. There's an overall sense of weariness and disillusionment, I think, throughout the camp. Nothing went as anyone thought it would, but no one in particular is particularly eager to do this again. But that is exactly what they can expect. Um, Yeah, dislocation? Maybe. Thyroid Dude says, I wondered about shoulder dislocation too, though his shoulder would probably appear distorted. Or perhaps a brachial plexus injury, where he might have minimal external evidence of trauma, but loss of neurological function, which may be temporary or permanent. This is 90 years before x-rays, and even a shoulder x-ray might be normal with a brachial plexus injury. I genuinely can't remember the diagnosis. Um, But I think... Dislocation sound. I've never broken my arm or dislocated it or anything like that, so I can't really. I'm trying to go off the description of what they're saying and what it would feel like, but see, I had the impression it was like his wrist, but the the injury was making his whole arm numb. But maybe because they're talking about like how his hand or something felt like a foreign object hanging off his arm, but maybe if your whole shoulder is dislocated, then the arm goes numb. And that's why the hand would feel like it's not even there. Does that make sense? Like it might become more and more numb as it goes further down the extremity. I don't know. Anyway, we'll find out, I'm sure. 
Gurgis Athamuli says, Captain Tushin is the main character of the last two chapters. I believe he's the Russian people at... He is the Russian people at war personified by Tolstoy. Oh, very cool. Uh, however sim- sympathetic he is to Bagration, who truly was a great military commander, it is this early that it is this early that he starts preaching his convictions about the chaotic nature of war, which recognizes no leaders and no initiators, but rather serves some processes that are deeply ingrained in the nations. Thus, Bagration receives his share of admiration, but Tushin even more so because the contrast between his usual routines and his conduct in the battle is stark. A captain is closer to soldiers, walks barefoot, talks in high-pitched voice with seemingly no authority, and even consults with his sergeant, is furious in battle and shy with superiors just like the whole nation. Oh, that's beautiful. Gurgis, assumably. Um, yeah, that's just put a whole different perspective on Tushin. I've got a lot of respect for Tushin, and I love the way he's he proves himself as a as a man by going out and you know doing what needs to be done. It doesn't matter if he's got short little hunched shoulders or he's funny and doesn't wear his you know his socks or whatever it is, and uh, he's got a high pitched squeaky voice. Um. He, he doesn't care about any of that. He just does a great job of what he does and proves himself in that way, you know, and I think that's awesome. Guanado. Hey, Guanado. I haven't seen that name for a while. Wow, what a chapter. Probably my favorite one so far. I got the sense that the soldiers are coming down from the height of, high of battle and dealing with reality, for better or worse. Yeah, you get a big sense of that with Rostov, don't you? Um, I love Rostov's journey in the last few chapters. From being on his horse, going, I'm going to slash him to pieces, and then next minute waking up on the field, wondering where everyone is, and being unable to comprehend that he is the subject of the enemy's hatred. Um, I love the officers, says Guanado, who were trying to play up their importance by exaggerating and making up stories about heroics that didn't really happen, contrasted with Tushin who was ready to be reprimanded rather than be honest about his actions. I love, yeah, I love that Tushin um, is so ready to be reprimanded. And even when they say to him, like, you know, you lost two guns, what's what's going on? Why didn't you use some of the backup to help you recover those guns? Rather than saying, well, there was no backup, which was true, and makes him look more heroic. He doesn't say that because he doesn't want someone else to get in trouble who should have been his backup for not being there. And so even at that point of being reprimanded, he's still kind of a ride or die guy. Like he still won't throw his colleagues under the bus, even as they're throwing him under the bus. A lot of respect for the guy. Andre rises above the situation admirably. I like him more and more all the time. Andre is a great character. And one of the great things about Andre is, and you'll see this, is how flawed he is and he's so human you know like our introduction to Andre who you do like more and more but was just a guy who really hates his pregnant wife and wants to get the hell away from her and feels kind of blames her for the fact that he's wasting his life you know and can you get more of an unattractive introduction to a character than that and then he fights his way back into your heart you know into your good graces from there it's pretty cool the way they've done that uh poor rostov is in agony says granado and i wonder how long he can go without medical help before he suffers permanent damage or succumbs to his injuries 
were field medics not a thing in those days? Man, it is going to be tough to get back to the society chapters. I had a hard time getting to book two, but by the end, I liked it even better than book one. Ah, uh, see, that's awesome. And I've I said this all I've said this a few times that like the war bits are like it's like every society chapter is a solid like six out of ten, you know, and then the war bits. Most of them are like a four out of ten, but then you get the occasional one that's like a nine. You know, all the best bits of the book, or a lot of the best books bits of the book are in the war bits, whereas the um, the society bits are just kind of like generally good. Does that make sense? I don't know. Maybe I'm just talking rubbish. But yeah, it's true for me to say that I my favorite my favorite settings are the society chapters but my favorite bits of the book happen in the war bits it's a strange phenomenon now starting book three by the way Gwenardo we're going back to uh, society so get ready you know like it's it, it feels a little bit the same I'm gonna be honest like I've been in you know book three now for a few days struggling through the first few chapters with my project um, available now at amazon.com um, and it is a bit that it's, it's a bit like oh, I just got settled into the war setting and now here I am trying to get settled back into the society Brian it doesn't take as long though I'll tell you that because we're already familiar with society so you do um, we're, we're kind of you know what's good we're kind of past the bit of the book where you're finding your bearings because we've found our society bearings and we've found our war bearings and we're kind of ready to go in both settings from here so that's really good well done the mood atmospherics says brian e denton in this chapter are unsurpassed the flittering embers floating in the dark night the swirling snowfall all those post-battle emotions so good post-battle emotions yeah very very cool all right guys are we ready are we ready to uh oh hang on brett peterson i'm going to read this comment brett peterson says yesterday there was a discussion about the unicorn cannon and it seems to me after reading today's chapter that the footnote is probably correct and it was an older but still fully functional gun Cool. Yeah, I think that's it too. I think that's it. Oh, wait, this is another interesting one. Um, Wikipedia says the Battle of Schongraben was a French tactical victory, but a Russian strategic victory. By holding off the French late into the night and executing a well-organized withdrawal of troops, Bagration followed Kutuzov... Sorry, Bagration allowed Kutuzov enough time to unite with... Buxhovden in Bruno, Brunau. Um, the Russians were outnumbered six to one, but they held their own. Wiki gives a count of, <coughs> excuse me, 1,200, 1,200 out of the 7,300 killed. Another 1,400 captured and no mention of other casualties. Will Rostov be one of these casualties? I suppose we'll find out soon enough. Okay, so... 1,400 are captured, 1,200, what are we up to? 1,200, 2,600 we're up to, out of 73. 26 out of 73. Um, and then injuries, 
would be another couple of thousand. So I reckon they got away with three quarters of their men and some of those would have been injured. There we go. Not bad. Not bad considering it was basically a suicide mission. Thanks for that lost for lost soul four lost souls in a bowl. I love those kind of comments that just kind of bring out the facts from Wikipedia. Very cool. Okay, now we're ready <clears throat> excuse me to read the next chapter. Question is oh, I don't have it open. Damn it, I hate when I do that. Oh, I know why I don't have it open, because we're starting a new book. That's why I don't have it open. Oh, that's nice and easy. I just have to open it and go to chapter one. All right, book three. Here we go. Book three, chapter one. 1805. You guys ready? Let's do it. Chapter one, 1805. Prince Vasily wasn't the kind of guy to think through his plans. Less so was he the kind of guy who'd think of doing harm to someone for his own get, for his own benefit. Really, Vasily was a man of the world who just got on with things in his own way, and to whom getting on with things was a habit. He was always falling into some scheme or plan, plan, <clears throat> though he never attributed them to himself. They simply appeared because of all because of the people he met, all the circumstances he found himself in. Oh, I'm editing while I read, by the way. <clears throat> and we're not talking one or two of these schemes. At any given time, there were dozens of them going on in his head, some in their early inception, some nearly complete, and some fizzling out. He didn't set out with ideas like, this guy is suddenly influential, I need to gain his confidence and become mates so I can extract some value from him. Or, Pierre is rich now, I should tempt him to marry my daughter so I can borrow the 40 large I need. But when he happened upon a man in power, he would instinctively know that he could be he could be useful, and without thought, Prince Vasily would immediately gain his confidence, blow smoke up his ass, become mates, and finally bring up what he needed. He was keeping Pierre at hand in Moscow and had secured him a position as gentleman of the bedchamber, which at that time was a was as big a deal as being count counsellor of state, and he insisted that Pierre should accompany him to Petersburg and stay at his house, as if absent-mindedly, but at the same time with absolute conviction that it must be done, Prince Vasily did everything he could to get Pierre married to his daughter, Helena. If he'd put too much forethought into his plans, he wouldn't have seemed so natural and familiar with everyone he interacted with, both higher and lower than himself in social status. Something always drew him towards people richer and more powerful than himself, and he had a real gift for recognising the most opportune moment to make use of someone. Pierre, after unexpectedly becoming Count Bezikov and filthy rich, felt that, compared to his usual carefree, do-whatever-whenever-loner lifestyle, he was now surrounded by people and had no time to himself whatsoever, except for when he went to bed. He was always being made to sign shit or present himself at government offices. Why? He had no idea. To ask his chief steward something or other, or to visit his estate near Moscow and to host get-togethers with people who previously gave precisely zero fucks about Pierre but would now have chucked a hissy fit if Pierre refused to see them. 
These people, these different people, businessmen, relations and randoms alike, were all inclined to blow gigantic amounts of smoke up the young heir's arse. All of them were absolutely convinced that Pierre was a true blue legend. He was always hearing shit like, "'Cause you're such a ripper bloke,' or "'Cause you're a real gem,' or "'Count, count, you're a clever egg,' or "'If he had half your brains,' and so on, till he started to sincerely believe he was exceptionally kind and clever, amplified by the fact that deep down he had always thought he was kind and clever anyway. Even people who had been outright bastards to him previously were now kissing his ass. I'm just going to, uh, just going to rephrase this. Clever and kind. Amplified the fact that deep down he had always thought he was clever and kind. Anyway, I've just reworded it from kind and clever to clever and kind because it makes the sentence a bit easier to read. Um, Even people who had been outright bastards to him previously were now kissing his ass. The older princess, the real angry one with the long body and hair plastered to her head like a doll, had come to Pierre's room after the funeral. With droopy eyes and a blushing face, she told him she was very sorry about the misunderstandings that had happened between them and that she didn't feel she had a right to ask anything of Pierre, but would appreciate it if he would let her but would appreciate it if he would let her, after the blow she had received, stay a few weeks longer in the beloved house where she'd made such sacrifices. She couldn't help but bawl her eyes out as she spoke. Pierre was touched by this sudden change in the princess, and without knowing why, he took her hand and begged her forgiveness. She was different towards Pierre from that day on, and started knitting a striped scarf for him. Do this for me, monsieur. After all, she put up with a ton of shite from your late father, said Prince Vasily to him, handing him a deed to sign which would benefit the princess. Prince Vasily had decided Pierre needed to throw the princess a bone, a 30,000 ruble bone, mostly so she wouldn't come sniffing around his share of the inlaid portfolio. Pierre signed the deed and the princess became even nicer after that. The young sisters became chummy with him too, especially the youngest, the sexy one with the sexy mole, who often made him feel flustered by her shy smiles and her own flusteredness when she saw him. It seemed perfectly reasonable to Pierre that everyone should like him. He'd have found it weird if they didn't, and so he genuinely believed they were being legit. Besides, he didn't have time to scratch himself, let alone question if the people around him were legit. He was always flat out like a lizard drinking and always felt slightly buzzed and red hot on life. He felt like he was right at the centre of some important movement that was larger than him, that something was constantly expected of him, that if he didn't do it, he would piss off and disappoint stacks of people, but if he did the bits and bobs, all would be fine. And he did what was demanded of him, but like a carrot-chasing donkey, the positive outcome always seemed to remain in the future. More than anyone else, it was Prince Vasily that controlled Pierre the most in those early days, steering him this way and that. He kept him on a tight leash from the day the old Count died. He acted as if he was swamped with business, but couldn't for pity's sake leave such a helpless young man to deal with the headaches and schemesters that came with his new fortune especially considering he'd been friends with Pierre's old man. 
During the few days he spent in Moscow after the old count died, he would call Pierre, or go to him, and tell him that, and tell him what he needed to be doing. Oh God, so many typos. Tell him what he needed to be ding. Tell him what he needed to be doing, speaking in a weary and supportive tone, as if to suggest, you know, I'm absolutely swamped with work myself, but it's only from the goodness of my heart that I'm taking the time to help you. And you also know damned well that my instructions are the best actions possible for you. Well, mate, we're off at last, said Prince Vasily one day, closing his eyes and guiding Pierre by the elbow, speaking as if he were merely reminding Pierre of some unchangeable plan that they'd long since agreed upon. We start tomorrow, and you can ride along with me in my carriage. I'm wrapped. All the important stuff we had to sort out here is done, and I'll... And I really should have made a move ages ago. Here's something the Chancellor sent me. I asked him for you, and you've been entered into the diplomatic corps and made a gentleman of the bedchamber. The door to a diplomatic career is now wide open for you. Even though Vasily really hammed up his weary and supportive tone when he spoke, Pierre, who had been thinking about his career for ages, wanted to make a suggestion. But Prince Vasily interrupted him, in his special, forcefully calm tone, he reserved for times he he reserved for times he was trying very hard to persuade. S- uh, but Prince Vasily interrupted him in his special, forcefully calm tone. He reserved for times when he was trying to very hard to persuade someone and really didn't want to be interrupted. My monsieur, I did this for my own sake so I could sleep at night with a clear conscience, and there is no need to thank me. No one has ever complained so far of being loved too much. And besides, you're a free man. You could give it up, give it all up tomorrow. But you'll see it all for yourself when you get to Petersburg. It's about time we get you away from the bad memories here. Prince Vasily sighed. Yes, yes, my boy. And my valet can go in your carriage. Oh, I nearly forgot, he added. You know, Monsieur, your father and I had some accounts to settle, so I've received what was due from the Ryazan estate, and I'll keep that. You won't be needing it. We'll go we'll get in we'll go into the details later. By what was due from the Ryazan estate, Prince Vasily meant several thousand roubles of land tax paid by Pierre's peasants, which the prince pocketed. In Petersburg, Pierre found the same phenomenon of overwhelming niceness from everyone as he had in Moscow. He couldn't refuse the job, or the job title, might be more apt because he didn't actually do anything, that Prince Vasily had gotten him. Acquaintances, invites and social dues were so frequent, even more so than in Moscow, that he felt flat out busy just trying to keep his head above water and there was a sense that some kind of good was always just around the corner but never arrived. Most of his former lad mates, other young bachelors, were gone from Petersburg now. The guards had gone to the front. Dolokhov had been demoted to the ranks. Anatole was in the army somewhere in the provinces. Prince Andre was overseas. So Pierre didn't have the chance to spend his nights in the old way, or to open his mind with a close conversation with a respected older friend. All his time was taken up by dinners, balls and hanging out at Prince Vasily's place with the chunky princess, his wife, and his smoking hot daughter, Helena. 
Like everyone else, Anna Pavlovna Scherer demonstrated the change to super niceness that he'd seen all throughout society. Before he was filthy rich, he felt he was always saying the wrong thing around Anna Pavlovna. Or being a doofus, or like he shouldn't even be there, or like things that seemed clever in his head became spazzy when they came out his mouth, while on the contrary, Ippolit's stupidest comments were spot on and brilliant. Now everything Pierre said was charming. Even if Anna Pavlovna didn't say so, he could see that she wanted to and only stopped herself out of modesty. At the start of the winter of 1805 to 1806, Pierre received one of Anna Pavlovna's usual pink envelopes with an invitation, with a note added, The gorgeous Helena will be there. Always delightful to see her. When he read that sentence, Pierre felt it click for the first time that everyone else had linked Helena and himself together, and it surprised him, as if he'd suddenly had to appease their expectations but couldn't, and entertained him too as an interesting notion. Anna Pavlovna's at home was like her previous soiree, only the novelty morsel of garnished beef that she showed off to her guests wasn't Mortemart, but a diplomatist fresh from Berlin with the latest word on Emperor Alexander's visit to Potsdam, and of how the two impressive friends and had joined in an unbreakable alliance to uphold justice in the face of the enemy of all mankind, Anna Pavlovna welcomed Pierre with a smidge of melancholy. Evidently because of the young man's recent loss of his father, everyone seemed to think it was their jobs to constantly assure Pierre he was greatly pained by the death of the father he'd hardly known. And her melancholy was just like the dignified melancholy that she showed at the mention of her most dignified majesty, the Empress Maya Fedorovna. Pierre felt flattered by this. Anna Pavlovna sorted her guests into groups in her drawing room with her usual skill. The large group, which Prince Vasily and the generals were part of, had the benefit of the diplomat. Another group was hanging out at the tea table. Pierre wanted to join the first group, but Anna Pavlovna had other ideas. She was like an excited commander on a battlefield, whose head was rapidly filling with bright ideas, but who didn't have time to execute them all. And seeing Pierre, she put her hand to his sleeve and said, Wait a sec, I've got something in mind for you tonight. She looked in the direction of Helena and smiled. Helena, Dal, do me a favour and go keep my poor old aunt company. She loves you. Go chat with her for ten minutes, and just so it's not too dull, here's Count Bezikov. He won't mind keeping you company. The beautiful Helena went to the aunt, but Anna Pavlovna kept Pierre back, with a look as if she had to give him some important instructions before he went. Isn't she gorgeous? She said to Pierre, pointing at the absolute babe as she glided away. And look how she glides. For such a young girl, such tact, such grace. It comes from her heart. She's a natural. It'll be a lucky bastard who nabs her. With her, even the biggest dope of a man will be lifted up to the top of class. Don't you reckon? I'm just curious what you reckon. And Anna Pavlovna let Pierre go. In reply, Pierre agreed with her that Helena acted perfectly. If he ever thought of Helena, it was just about how sexy she was and how skilled she was at keeping her mouth shut and smiling while in society. 
The old aunt allowed the two youngsters to come over to her, but didn't seem to adore Helena quite so much. Instead, she just seemed scared of Anna Pavlovna. She looked at her niece as if for a clue as to what to do with these youngsters. When she left them, Anna Pavlovna... As she left them, Anna Pavlovna touched Pierre's sleeve and said, I bet you won't be saying my place is boring after tonight. And she glanced at Helena. Helena smiled, her look implying that to her it wasn't possible that anyone could see her without falling in love. The aunt coughed, swallowed, and said in French that she was really happy to see Helena. Then she turned and said the same thing to Pierre, with the same look. In the middle of their dull and slow conversation, she turned to Pierre, the massive, bright smile that she flashed to everyone. What? Helena turned. I'm going to just rephrase this. With, okay, I'm going again. In the middle of their dull and slow conversation, Helena turned to Pierre with the massive bright smile that she flashed to everyone. With the same, same massive bright smile that she flashed to everyone. Pierre was used to that smile. He'd seen it all around the room, and so it meant nothing to him and he hardly noticed it. The aunt was talking boringly about a bunch of snuff boxes she that had belonged to Pierre's old man, Count Bezikov, and showed them her own snuffbox. Princess Helena asked to see the portrait of the aunt's husband on the lid of the box. That's got to be the work of Vanessa, is it? said Pierre, mentioning a famous miniaturist, and he leaned over the table to take the snuffbox while trying to hear what was being said at the other table. He half rose, wanting to go round, but the aunt handed him the snuffbox, passing it around the back of Helena. Helena stooped forward to let it pass behind her and looked around with a smile. She was, as always at evening parties, wearing a very fashionable and, at the time, dress cut super low at the front and back. Her cleavage, which had always seemed made of marble to Pierre, was so was close to him was so close to him that his short-sighted eyes couldn't help but note how attractive her neck and shoulders were, so close to him that he could have bent his head forward and pressed his lips against them. Um, alright, I've just got to change that. And... Um... Go on again. Her cleavage, which had always seemed made of marble to Pierre, was so close to him that his short-sighted eyes couldn't help but note how attractive her neck and shoulders were, so close to him that he could have bent his head forward and motorboated her. He was aware of the warmth of her body, the smell of her perfume, and the creaking of her corset as she moved. He didn't see her marble beauty as a whole package with her clothing, but rather he saw a bunch of clothes getting in the way of her beauty. And once he'd seen her this way, he couldn't unsee it. Wait, did you notice until now... Wait, sorry, going again. Wait. Did you not notice until now how sexy I am? Helena seemed to say. You didn't notice I'm a woman. Yes, I'm a woman, and I could belong to anyone, including you, said her glance. And at that moment, Pierre felt that Helena not only could, but must be his wife, and he couldn't 
have it any other way. He was as sure of this now as if he had been standing at the altar with her. How and when it would happen he didn't know, and he didn't even know if marrying her would be a good thing. He had a sneaking suspicion that it would in fact be a terrible thing, although he didn't know why. But he knew it would happen. Pierre dropped his gaze, lifted it again, and hoped that he might see her as an unobtainable beauty, as he always had before. But he no longer could. He couldn't, just like a guy who thought a bit of grass on a hill was a tree, but when the mist cleared noticed it was grass. He couldn't. Ah, okay. I have to remove that. Just like a guy who thought a bit of grass on a tree... Sorry, just like a guy who thought a bit of grass on a hill was a tree, but when the mist cleared, noticed it was just grass. He was unable to see her as a tree anymore, but as an unobtainable, potentially life-ruining bit of grass that he could have. But as an obtainable... Oh my God, what a mess. (laughs) Just like a guy who thought a bit of grass on a hill was a tree... But when he, when the mist cleared, noticed it, it was a bit of grass. I'm just going to mark this whole sentence as needing attention. Because <laughs> it's a bit sloppy. Just uh, You can tell, like, I'm just getting fatigued as I was doing this translation, you know. It goes forever. Just like a guy who thought a bit of grass on a hill was a tree, but when the mist cleared, noticed that it was just grass... He was unable to see her as a tree anymore, but only as an uh, as a completely obtainable, potentially life-ruining bit of grass. He wasn't able to see her as a tree anymore. Instead, seeing, instead, he now saw her as a completely obtainable, potentially life-ruining bit of grass that he could have. That could be his. Oh. He wasn't able to see her as a tree anymore. Instead, he now saw her as a completely obtainable, potentially life-ruining bit of grass that could be his. All right, I'm happy with that. <clears throat> Let's continue. <laughs> she was bloody close to him. She already had power over him, and the barrier that existed between them was no longer any barrier except for the barrier of his own will. Well, I'll leave you in your little corner, came Anna Pavlovna's voice. I see you are fine here. Pierre looked around, blushing, desperately trying to figure out if he'd done something reprehensible. It seemed to him like everyone knew the spell he'd just been under as he knew it himself. I'm going to change that. It seemed to him like everyone knew... that... the last minute... he... what do they call it when it's like... um, like eye-fucking someone? Um, Or like... in his imagination been motorboating the fuck out of Helena. All 
Right, here we go. It seemed to him like everyone knew that for the last few minutes he had, in his imagination, been motorboating the fuck out of Helena. A little later, when he went up to the larger circle, Anna Pavlovna said to him, I hear you're redoing your place in Petersburg. She was right. The architect had insisted it was necessary, and Pierre, as usual, without knowing why, was having his enormous Petersburg place done up. That's a good thing, but still, you should stay with Prince Vasily. It's good to have a friend like him, she said, smiling at Prince Vasily. I know a thing or two about that, don't I? And you're still a spring chicken. You need advice. Don't be angry with me. It's my right to do this as an old woman. She paused in the way women always do after they mention their age, waiting for something. If you get married, it'll be a different story, she continued, bringing them together in one glance. Pierre did not look at Helena, and she didn't look at him. But she was just as close to him as ever. She muttered something, he muttered something, and went red. When he got home, he couldn't sleep. He was thinking about what had happened, but what had happened? Nothing. He'd just come to realise that the woman he'd known as a child, of whose beauty, when it was mentioned, he would shrug and say, yeah, she is a bit of a looker, might soon belong to him. But she's dumb as dog shit. I've said it myself, she's dumb, he thought. There's something nasty, something wrong with the excitement she makes me feel. I've even been told that her brother Anatoly has the hots for her, and she for him. That there was a bit of a scandal between them, and that's why he was sent away. Ippolit is her brother, Prince Vasily is her dad. It's not good, he reflected. But, while he was thinking this, mid-thought, he caught himself smiling and was aware that another thought was springing up in his mind, and while he thought about how worthless and shit she was, <laughs> worthless and dumb she was, he was also dreaming about making her his wife, and how she would love him, and he supposed that all the bad things he'd heard about her might be wrong, and again he saw her not as Vasily's daughter, but imagined her whole body only veiled by a thin grey dress. Wait, no. Why did I ever think of her like... Why did I never think of her like this before? And again he told himself that it was impossible, that it would be weird as hell and dishonourable if he married her. He remembered her words and looks, and the words and looks of people who'd seen them together. He remembered... Excuse me. <clears throat> he remembered Anna Pavlovna's words and looks when she spoke to him about his house, remembered a thousand little hints from Prince Vasily and others, and was suddenly petrified that he'd somehow committed to do this very wrong thing that he didn't want to do. But even while he thought this, convincing himself it was true, in another part of his mind the image of her in all her woman, womanly beauty arose. I'm going to change the end. That's the end, by the way. Another part of his mind... <laughs> ...was straight up motorboating her titties. Look, it's a boring chapter. I need to just go a little bit crazy with the vulgarities. <laughs> but even while he thought this, convincing himself... It was true. 
Wait, okay. He remembered Anna Pavlovna's words and looks when she spoke to him about his house, remembered a thousand little hints from Prince Vasily and others, and was suddenly petrified that he'd somehow committed to do this very wrong thing that he didn't want to do. Very stupid thing. Thing that he didn't want to do. But even while he thought this, convincing himself it was true, in another part of his mind... Um, nope, delete... But even while he thought this, convincing himself it was true, another part of his mind was straight up motorboating her titties. <laughs> I'm happy with that. I've made myself chuckle and that's all I really... That's the whole point of this project, right? Life's too serious and daily have a chuckle at something. You know, that's my goal in life. Daily have a chuckle at something. And if it's got to be something immature and vulgar, so be it. You know, sue me. All right, guys. I hope you liked that. Uh, I actually want, even though it's a long and pretty dry chapter, it is good to be back with Pierre. I think Pierre's, you know, he's one of my favorite characters of the book. I was going to say, I think he's my favorite character of the book. He's definitely in the top three, put it that way. I love spending time with Pierre. So it's good to be back with Pierre. It is a bit of a dry chapter. But I would like to read it again to get the full effect of the fact that in my version, Pierre keeps, every time he's trying to convince himself not to marry her, he keeps imagining motorboating her titties. Um, <laughs> which, you know, I, I, have, I have strayed a little bit away from the authenticity with that. But at the same time, I don't think I've strayed that far. I'm pretty sure that's what he was getting at. Because in the original one, it's it literally in the Maud one it says something like this there's this there's the bit where they're sitting next to each other and um the old lady hands a snuff box to Pierre behind Helena and he has to sort of reach behind her and she leans forward so that he can do that and she looks at him while she's leaning forward for him to reach around behind her and so if he's looking down at her while reaching behind her he's getting a face full of boobs right and that's what it's saying and it literally says they were so close that he could push his lips to them uh, it does say her bust, doesn't say her titties, um, but you know, he's getting a face full of her bust, and he's so close that he could push his lips to them, and then he keeps feeling this kind of sense of like, oh, whoa, did anyone just notice what I was just thinking? You know, he starts to feel like guilty, like everyone in the room can see what he's thinking, so he's thinking impure thoughts. So, yeah, I mean, in the original, he pushes his lips to them. In my one, he goes between them, you know, it's not that much different. <laughs> All right, guys. Uh, thanks for listening. I'll see you tomorrow.